0: He's <laughs> just whacking at normal. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Welcome back to Seeds and Their People. I'm Chris Bolden-Newsom, farmer and co-director at Sankofa Community Farm at Bartram's Garden in sunny southwest Philadelphia. And I'm your host today, along with my co-host, Mama D. And we are coming to you from the Mississippi Delta. Uh, We are in the car to Memphis for the airport. So you'll hear some ambient car noises. Uh, You'll also sort of hear the sound of the wind rushing through uh, Mississippi. Well, who are we talking to today, mommy?
2: So, we're gonna be talking to Mr. Elgin Johnson, who is a firewood seller, and also he raises greens, all types of greens on his patch of land. We will also be talking to Kibion Young, who is a farmer educator here in Leland, Mississippi. And also um, a wealth of knowledge on a lot of subjects, especially growing food and working with youth. We'll also be talking to my husband, Rufus Newsom.
1: Well, I'm very excited because we're going to be highlighting these gentlemen uh, from the Mississippi Delta who are just a wealth of history and knowledge in themselves. But also because we're going to be putting a spotlight on the Mississippi Delta uh, and that doesn't happen uh, that often outside of talking about the blues and maybe barbecue. So we're very excited to delve into some of the wonderful and and, and as I said often untold story uh, of of black Mississippi agricultural life uh, in these modern days. So this weekend, uh, mommy, this was Thanksgiving weekend or Thanksgiving weekend, however you want to think of it. Of course we had a lot of our traditional foods and um of course uh, brian our son was able to go out and, and and walk out in the mississippi woods and harvest pecans the way we used to when we were young and generations before us uh used to the food that we ate this weekend can you tell folks a little bit about um what was some of the particular uh, uh mississippi specialties that we had the uh, foods that on our table that might not be found in other parts of uh the country certainly or or the world
2: okay so one of the things that we got to eat was some of mr elgin's greens and they were pulled straight from his patch and we took them home cleaned them up which was a whole family adventure we included the youth in that my husband went out and and brought the young people together and showed them how to clean a, a whole bunch of greens at one time. So it was done in tubs in the front yard and oh, it was just really beautiful. And also we had, um, I made a cha-cha. We had made it especially for Thanksgiving a few weeks back. And it was from the last of the harvest that my, my husband grew the green tomatoes, uh, the bell peppers for it, the onions, the garlic, all of the ingredients that went into making the cha-cha, which we eat that with our traditional greens, which are mustards and turnips here. Uh, Not so much collard greens uh, as there are in other places that other African-American groups eat, but which is not one of our traditional greens. But we did have some mixed into the cha-cha and homage of some of our ancestors that were uh, part of that, that group that ate collard greens. Also, our honey that came from our farm, my husband and I are beekeepers, but he tends to the bees. And so we had honey on the table continuously. We had fresh chicken eggs from one of our neighbors. I think we ordered probably about seven dozen eggs for the weekend. Which was not something we would usually do, and I'm trying to think of some other things. We actually did have pecans, and they were from our from our property, as well as one of our neighbors' properties.
1: Some folks would be surprised to hear uh, my mother say that um, collard greens were not on our table, uh, except um, uh, in in a little bit chopped up in the chow chow. Chow chow, by the way, um, for folks um, not familiar and folks not from the south is a, a traditional relish um, that we use. But uh, as she said, it's, it's, it's everything um, that's left over after the end of the harvest uh, as winter is coming on. And so, uh, you know, we eat that with greens, we eat that with beans and with meat and uh, different things too. It's just another way to get extra vegetables and fiber into our system. And it's one of the traditional ways that Folks kept in good health uh, while enjoying the delicious food uh, that the South is so famous for. And those pecans as well went into uh, two delicious uh, pecan pies uh, that we made.
2: I also wanted to mention we grew sweet potatoes. So we used the sweet potatoes when we made sweet potato pie, oh, we had several pies that were made by our daughter, Ariana. And I'm telling you, they were magnificent.
1: They absolutely were. Yeah, but I have to definitely tip my hat to her for those potato pies. So yeah, so those were some of the Mississippi delights uh, that we had. And what was beautiful and powerful about them is that they came right from the field, like mommy said, and they came right from from our field or from the field of our, our neighbors, which is traditionally how people around here would eat um, for holidays and big gatherings and. Uh, we certainly had a lot of family in town and had a good time praying and singing and eating and, and just relaxing uh, in our native soil, in the soil where our grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents are buried. So it was a wonderful time, and we hope that you all enjoy and soak up some of the spiritual residue of that from uh, these wonderful interviews that we do with these fine gentlemen uh, of the Delta. Okay, y'all. So, in this interview, we'll be hearing from Demelda Bolden Newsom, my mother, and she'll be interviewing Kevian Devontae Young. Please listen and I hope you enjoy.
2: Hello, this is Demelda Newsom here in Greenville, Mississippi. And today we're going to have a conversation with our brother Kevian Young. Let me have him introduce himself to you.
3: Hey, my name is Kevian Devante Young. I am an agriculture instructor here. I teach a diversified agriculture course here in Leland, Mississippi, among other things. But I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me.
2: Okay. So, Kevian, tell us a little bit about you.
3: I'm a musician. I really want to start with that. You know, we're here in the birthplace of America's music, Mississippi. Okay. Uh, so, me being a musician was is really how I got into all of nature and natural works because understanding even instrumentation and natural sounds create music and harmony. So, um, I'm a musician, I do different sound bath uh, workshops and events with my shamanistic practice, um, crystal ray key. Um, I teach here, then I, I do modeling. Um, I'm a freelance graphic designer and I do a little creative directing on the side. So, it's like a, a plethora of the arts, but really, you know, science is my main background. I really started working with food when I came back to Mississippi and actually joined Food Corps, the organization out of Portland, Oregon. Uh, I served for, with them for about three years and really getting into what people actually eat and giving them the chance to try organic foods that were grown in the local environment and just giving them that experience. That that's my that was my first step into food, um, and, and now I'm actually you know teaching this course here in Leland.
2: So in teaching organic practices, was it receptive to the community or was that a challenge?
3: A challenge. And you know why? Because we have this ancestral trauma that we deal with within the industry of agriculture. I think, no, it was not. (laughs) It was not receptive. I had, you know, it was strange. It was weird for them.
2: So how did you begin to introduce it to the community that you were working with? Was it through the youth or was it directly to the community as a whole?
3: Through the youth. It, it was, you know, picking their brains enough, you know, we they're, they still have their imagination, not like many of us that grow older. Getting them to tap into the wonder of nature. So having different tidbits of you know wow do you see the seed you know look how big it got you know do you know the whole plant is in the seed right now and just little bits of fat, fun facts and it and it and it kind of became cool because it's like oh that's different and you know everyone likes to be different mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. so that that's what that was my spin and. Um, it really implementing it, you know, making it a part of my style. They see the different things I wear. they made out of different stones and earth elements. Mm. Yeah, even like this feather. So it's just like always, okay. it's always happening. Mm.
2: So was that like your whole presence, something different for them? You yeah. know, because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, here I am in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And you are, you know, very unique in the way you dress and just kind of the way you walk you
3: know, walking in the world. Yeah. Tell me about that. So uh, I, I would accredit that to my musicianship because most people see me and they're like, you look like a musician. You you dress, yeah. And I, it's really taken in the culture of it, you know, in terms of understanding the different elements that intertwine in, in us, like the reflective part of it where, you know, your your presence does speak. So what you wear can speak for, you know, your experience and the path that you, you know, you know, we all know how important it is to present yourself. So for me, I present my life within how I move, whether it's my beard or my earrings or whatever else is, it all has meaning. So then my life becomes more meaningful and then that just translates to others.
2: Oh, great. Great now I know also that you're quite a traveler your international travels mm-hmm. how how do they impact you uh the work that you do right now
3: Oh greatly really when I had the chance to study abroad in Kazakhstan, mind you, I actually established that program. I was the first American to study at the second oldest university and Kazakhstan is the ninth largest country in the world and it's a fairly young country but that was historical because I established the academic mobility program between the HBCU here at Mississippi Valley State and West Kazakhstan State University. And I, I, over there, I studied biochemistry, analytical chemistry, ecology, Russian, of course, because I had to know how to, you know, speak to people. <laughs> and um, that that was a cultural experience and taking in different ways of life and understanding everything that I knew about my reality was called something different. You know, it was a different vibration Mm -hmm. of sorts. So Mm -hmm. even over there, I I started my yoga journey, you know, uh, ironically in Asia. (laughs) Yeah, it it opened me up into understanding that the science is an art, like it's art and science. I was this passionate student biologist and trying to figure out why am I a musician, too? How does this this kind of weird most people choose? And my, my whole life I never could choose. So it was the merging at that point between spirit and science.
2: Now you were speaking about the vibration. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit more about that, you know, how it, it differs at different points in your life?
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because we always say how's the vibe? It's a vibe. And, you know, that's a familiar word in society today, but everything is vibration. You know, going back to the principles of music, you have where the opera singer sings and she breaks the glass, Mm -hmm. her voice matches the pitch of that physical object and that's holding those molecules together. So that became a dramatic thing for me in my life then because I'm like, oh wow, everything, every color, every physical object, every emotion, every thought is a vibration. And that was, you know, very significant to me as a musician, because now it governed how I play my life.
2: Now, I want to tell you um, my encounter with the youth that you work with. Mm-hmm. Now, I kind of better understand that the vibration that you put out, um, it has impacted those youth. I, I see that they're, they're calm and they're just real helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they just have that spirit of servitude and 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 patience and you know just visiting there, mm-hmm. and it, it was like I don't know mi- miniature me. aware you know <laughs> people that are just all the way aware of their surroundings mm-hmm. and me being an elder, I mean I felt that, yeah. and I I have to say that you you probably contributed to that greatly because the regular youth aren't like but you work
3: with it at <laughs> that, all. Yes. Yeah. I always try to remind them of how special they are to actually have the privilege to, you know, take this time to study and understand this level of knowledge before they get out into the world. And um with me being able to um reflect and relate with them on an interpersonal level, you know, the mindfulness of teaching is about connecting with the the person as they are, not as you want them to be. So I know what I want them to be, but that's not what they are. So I don't get lost in, you know, um, the journey.
2: Yeah, I feel that, Mm -hmm. you know. I tell you, I'm I'm one of the people that's real thankful that you're working with the next generation to change some and break some of the barriers that have been there for success for our next generation, you know. Just having them touching the earth and, and understand everything around them. I I just commend you.
3: you, know? you. <laughs> it's that internal external environment. Yeah, it's yeah. environment. Like I teach so the in the course that I teach is the, what well, the program is called diversified agriculture. But it's four classes in the program. So it starts with the principles of intro to agro science, where we get into agro business entrepreneurship, plants, animals, different projects, creative works, and it's called SAE supervised agriculture experience, FFA. You know. Um, Future Farmers of America originally, but now it's Future for All because, you know, it's bigger than farming because our agriculture is not just farming. (laughs) So that course you got after that, we go into Plants One, go into the physiology of really that kingdom as it relates to ours, going into environmental science. And the last course is agriculture mechanics where we go into small engine welding, electricity. So I'm teaching them from the ground up, from the seed to the soil to the robots. And and really just like an integrative class of life, because it's a circle.
2: Can you tell me a little bit of how you came to to do this work? Sort of your history of dealing with food. Mm
3: -hmm. So when I was in Kazakhstan, back to that part... When I did that scientific research over there, I studied um, the blood indices of hurt for the cattle and I did um, soil and water testing in, in different regions. So I went down, went around to different water sources and soil sources, tested that, and also went out to this um, rural um, farmland where I did a scientific analysis on how healthy the, the cattle were because they weren't in factory farms. So, you know, me... Um, shooting myself in the foot, I was like, oh, yeah, America's factory farms are better. I, you know, I know. but <laughs> So I'm like, you know, let me prove myself wrong because right. that looks good. That looks better, right. you know. And so when I got into presenting that uh, information to the um, Ministry of Science um, in Kazakhstan at an ecological conference, that research led me back to the capital here in Jackson, Mississippi, where I right. spoke it, again about this um, research at the rotunda. And um, the, the IHL commissioner at the time sent me to work with USDA in plant pathology with Dr. Uh, Susan Lee. It was really like a merging of what I studied into the application of, of my experience.
2: So I want to go uh, back, you know, further than that. Mm-hmm. Like when you were a child, Oh yeah. you know, like how did you, because it, it seems like it had to be mm-hmm. something that peaked when you were younger. Yeah. So yeah. can you tell us about that, your family and... How, maybe all of that?
3: Some kids are into video games and shoes, and some kids are into butterflies and ladybugs. Which one was I? (laughs) So I was really spending time outside, especially at my grandma Lila's house. You know, that's the daughter of my great grandmother, my the one that I mentioned in um, one of my uh, recent articles. She um, was raising different animals, dogs, and plants. You know, and so, and she lived at the time when I was um coming up, she lived in front of some woods. The woods were behind her in the backyard, so it from burning and understanding the process of that conservation of matter and energy can't be you know created destroyed untransferred and seeing things being transferred into the fire and just the application of nature and being able to talk to the trees, see shapes in the in the sky so it was that wonder of the of my childhood that I really never felt like wasn't real okay. it was like oh yeah okay. i talked to that tree i'll tell anybody oh yeah when i was yeah. i talked to that tree okay. and we we did all of these things together okay. and so i kept it okay. yeah
2: now you're also a really good cook out here <laughs> great cook from yeah. my understanding okay
3: well, i think i i could accredit that to um merely the change in my diet i'm a vegetarian i've been vegetarian for like seven to eight years now so, trying different recipes and understanding different textures and plants and spices. So I'm I'm, I'm good now. <laughs> yeah, really good, yeah.
2: So you had a big sweet potato yes. festival. Yeah, that looked mm-hmm. really interesting. Mm-hmm. And give us a clue of what all happened there.
3: So there, I actually kind of inherited the position of hosting that sweet potato fest, not by you know family, but really more by occupation, because okay. that was actually originally established by Delta Health Alliance with Delta Eats. A guy called Ryan Betts, he started it. So when I came into Food Corps, you know, there was some changing commands, people, you know, changing different positions and things and um, Delta Health Alliance had um, at that point um, ended their partnership and as long as well as Food Corps. So I just kept it going, and it it, really—we just had the sixth annual one, and it was great. Uh, We had a taste test there where we get the chance to actually experience sweet potato greens, and a lot of people don't really know what that is or have—don't know what it looks like, never tried it. Even the process of growing sweet potatoes, most people didn't know, oh, wow, I got to dig them out of the ground. Like, yeah, it's the root. You know, it's like, wow, (laughs) people go through this much for sweet potatoes, but Mm -hmm. then understanding— the connection to the land again, and the importance of how it connects to your body, the nutrition—we go through all that. So I really kind of kept it going because with the community suffering from different things like high blood pressure and diabetes and everything up a source, you know, when we eat more organic and natural and more connected to the land that we live on, we thrive.
2: Yeah. Wow. What seed would you say um, tells your story? Hmm. And also tells the story of, of this community that we're in.
3: Hmm. I really want to choose okra. Only cause, because I've been okay. working with it so mm-hmm. well. And then, you know, you're at Delta State and okra. Oh. And it's just one of those symbols of home. Like, no matter where I see an okra, I'm like, oh yeah, Mississippi Delta. I'm home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and for the community, collard greens. Or a mustard seed. Oh, wow. Those two seeds significantly, you know, even a turnip. You know, we just those resonate with the community. We, you know, any any time of the year, it's gonna, we're gonna eat greens. Mm. You know, and that and we live in a green land, Greenville. Yeah. Okay, I get that one. That
2: was good. Okay. Yeah. So, is it any particular other foods that you know really resonate with with your spirit and your vibe that mm. you like to um, eat? Or
3: I have to choose onion. Onions. Onions. Okay. Because it's just layers. It's so many layers. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, and then I, because I'm so multi in everything that I do, yeah, the Because it sometimes okay. and, and it makes yeah. people cry, and and you know sometimes people don't like the taste of it, oh, yeah. but it's it, but it's good for you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It could be
2: sharp. Yep. Or sweet. Yeah. Or, yeah. I, I get that. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Okay. Well, we thank you again so much. You know, I really, really honor the time that you've given us to do this interview and pray continued blessings on your life. Thank you. Love you. (laughs) I love you too.
1: Thank you. Okay, y'all. So, in this interview, we'll be hearing from Mr. Rufus Newsome Sr., my dad, a farmer in Greenville, Mississippi. Uh, Now, you will hear me being referred to as Rumel. And so when you hear Rumel, they're talking about me, Chris. It's my middle name, the second name that my father and mother gave me. It's a combination between Rufus and Demelda. That's who uh, Owen is talking about uh, when you hear him refer to me. In the South, oftentimes we use uh, middle names or uh, nicknames as our common way of talking to people. Okay, I'm
4: sitting here. With my father-in-law, <laughs>
5: Mr. Rufus Newsom, can you say what you're doing? Oh, yeah. What I'm doing, I'm cleaning mustard greens. And I have this large container here on the ground, It's full of water, and a small amount of soap. So what I did, I dumped the greens in the container, ran water, and put just a drop of soap, and mixed it together just to remove uh, some of the dirt off the greens and all. And what I'm doing now, I'm rinsing the greens and putting them in a container and we're about to cook them when this is done. These are broad leaves, mustard greens, huge leaves you know, and delicious too. Uh, I love the stem to remain on my so when they're being cooked. Of course, uh, a lot of people don't want the stem. They, they think the stem is tough and all, but these greens are tender and all because we've had uh, a cool... Uh, the past, past two weeks been pretty cool, so the stems are really uh, nice, and uh, they're soft. Once they're cooked, they're delicious. Are you growing uh, any greens right now? Yes, we are. We're growing mustards, turnips, kale, and collards on uh, another portion of land that we're raising on. And here at the house, we're growing collards, and they're coming along pretty good. Uh, greens love cool weather, and so the weather's cool, so they're really growing, and leaves are really uh, wide and and thick and just uh, delicious when, when they're cooked. Where's this other portion of land? The other portion is, is on the north side of town. It is land that was given to us to farm more uh, by another group that stopped uh, about a year ago, and uh, so we decided we took it over and we've been on it for the past, uh, what, year and a half now.
4: And this is in Greenville, Mississippi. How long have you been back
5: here? We've been back in Greenville for the past, I think, five years now. It's been five years since we, since I returned. We're in Tulsa, Oklahoma for about 33, 34 years. This year would be my wife and our 48th anniversary. And I promised her 48 years ago before we left here that I would bring her back here to her parents. What well, about two years until the retirement, all the old folks passed on. And so the next two years, once I retired, uh, we packed up and we came back. I kept my promise to her.
4: <laughs>
5: How does it feel to be back? Wonderful. It just feels wonderful to be back in your ancestry land, uh, to see sites that when you were a boy, you roam those areas and all. See some of the fruit trees. Uh, that was here when we were here some 40 years ago. And and of course to meet people that you knew for years, years that I, that we knew years ago and they're still here. And when we left Rainville some 30 years ago, there was over 50,000 people here. The economy was good, booming, businesses everywhere, uh, jobs, uh, it was really, really a nice place to live. But now uh, the economy is low. Businesses have left. Um, there are small businesses here, basically. They're uh, paid minimum wage and on. It's really tough for families to survive on medium wage wages.
4: Can you kind of paint the picture of like where we are sitting right now and what's what's the the, the um, area like?
5: Okay, here this is our home. Um, we have like a four-bedroom dwelling home here, just north of the city of Greenville. I'm sorry, south a nice area, really nice and quiet at night, trees everywhere, Uh, the community that we live in is a quite unique community. Uh, Before we moved here, uh, we never knew that it exists. Of course, during that time, some 30, 40 years ago, blacks weren't allowed in this area here that we live in now, and now things have changed. Uh There's... Uh, mixed families here, and, and uh, everybody tend to go along quite well.
4: So when you were coming up in Greenville, they were it was very
5: segregated, right, by law? Yeah, it was segregated by law. But gradually, Greenville improved compared to other towns and cities in the state. Greenville was still one of the, the black hubs of Mississippi, uh, political-wise, economic-wise, and social-wise. So all those years
4: in in Tulsa, is that where you first started, you know, farming your own land?
5: Oh no, we've been farming for years. My mother, uh, my grandmother, I didn't know my grandfather. My grandmother uh, raised crops. I can remember her garden like it was yesterday. Uh, My mother raised crops. Uh, We've always raised crops, uh, as far as I can remember, and go back. Can you describe your, your grandmother's garden? Oh, I can remember this large collard tree. It was about four feet tall. And it, seemed like it was there forever in a garden. And we were picked from it. it seemed like all year round. Uh, but mostly well, during the fall month, the cooler month, it grew even more. And um, there were always a fresh supply of collard greens to eat at our home.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: You know, Ramel is very uh, proud of the
4: Mustard green and the turnip green. He con- doesn't consider collard greens <laughs> an ancestral green, but it sounds like it was a big part of your life growing up.
5: It was, but you know what? I can remember more of the collard green than the mustard greens, though. And we've always loved both, though. But I guess because of my my grandmother and that large collard tree, I can remember it more uh, than the uh, mustard green. But I'm sure we did. We 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 also we planted mustard greens because I remember eat, eating a lot of mustard green along with cornbread, sweet potatoes that we grew, uh, corn, peas, beans. We grew all that. And uh, I can I just, I can remember that.
4: Besides the greens, you mentioned peas and beans. Can you say what else was growing in these gardens, your your grandmothers,
5: your mothers? We grew watermelons. We grew um, spinach. Uh, we grew squash and cucumbers. Mm-hmm. I recall when I was small, during harvest time, my mom and grandma was picked the peas i would make a fire and uh i would go find a can like a can that mom had just opened it was i guess it was a peach can i remember it was peaches uh large yellow delicious sweet peaches and i would take that can and go inside the house and wash it out with soap and water and i'd already had my fire made so during the harvest time i would also go by and pick the peas and corn and and cut the corn from the uh, from the, uh, corn stalk and mix it with the peas and all and set it on the fire and just sit there and watch it uh, cook. And so once it was done, I was remove it. And I went and got my fork, a spoon, whatever, seasoning and seasoning, and I ate that.
4: It was. How old were you?
5: I was about 10, 11 years old, I think. Maybe even younger though, probably younger than that. Uh-huh, yeah. And also I can recall the uncles, the men getting together butchering, Pigs and they would butcher the pig and pick and cut it up and I would call cutting some of the skin off myself and uh, sticking it on a stick and roasting the meat over the flame there. So <laughs> mm-hmm. you had your own little world with the fire. With you make your own food for yourself. Yes, I had my yeah you know, my own little world I, yeah and I enjoyed. I consider that my camping part. I was a Boy Scout already and that was part of my skills that I learned as a as a Boy Scout. Yeah. I can recall going camping in in the woods when sister was there and some other other kids from the neighborhood and I would go out and make my fire and we would go to the store and buy um, like canned wienies and all and pork and beans and we'd go out camping uh, right in the back of our home there that was a high school and there was a forest back there so we'd go out in the forest and uh, make a fire inside the forest there and, and cook those things that we had purchased from the store and we just had a really good time. What were your jobs in the garden, either your grandmother's or your or your mother's garden? My job was to pick, the, you know, pull up the grass and all. Yeah, I did a lot of hoeing also, hoeing, chopping the grass and pulling it and pulling dirt up to the plant and things like that. You didn't do any harvesting or processing? Oh yes, I did. I, I did a lot of harvesting, you know, picking the peas, the corn, and uh, tomatoes, uh, okra, oh yeah, okra, and uh, sweet potatoes. I, called my mother. She showed me how to store the sweet potatoes during the winter time. She would dig a hole in the ground about maybe two or three feet deep, and get a layer of straw and drop it there, and uh, get the potatoes and drop it on t- drop the potatoes on top on top of the straw, and put another layer of straw, and uh, put more potatoes in there, and put another layer and cover it up for the winter. So we had sweet potatoes all all year long, and they didn't spoil. The animals didn't eat them up or anything. So we wanted potatoes. She was my mom. Would send me outside and go out there, and uh, I think I had like a piece of board covering the uh, the hole there. And I would just go out and remove that little board and remove the straw and pull out four or five good-sized sweet potatoes. Were there any other foods uh, stored this way? You could have stored uh, ice uh, white potatoes that way also, but I I don't remember. We didn't grow a lot of ice potatoes. We sure didn't. Uh, uh, I think they were like cheap, they was cheaper than uh, sweet potatoes. So I think we always had plenty of that. Mm-hmm. We all lived together during that time. My grandmother lived with us, with my siblings and all, and uh, she would go out, and I would help break the gardens up with a shovel. We had shovels, we didn't have a tractor or a dish or nothing like that, and it was too expensive to hire someone to do it, so we did it ourselves. We broke the ground up ourselves with shovels and all. My brothers and sisters and would dig up the ground and set the rows and uh, plant our crops. But at, at an early age, um, I, uh, I planted crops just by watching them, what they, what they would do. Oh, so you had a plot a, a separate from
4: theirs as a, at an early age?
5: No, it wasn't separate. I would just plant between what they had already planted. <laughs> yes, <laughs>
4: I like how I keep asking questions about you yourself, and it's always answer about you as a family. I like that. It's not like you did your separate thing. It no, was no it was always with the family. It
5: wasn't separate, no at all, not at all. We'd go out and pick uh, fruit from the trees and, and bring that home. But now it's hard to even find fruit trees and all compared to they were plentiful during that time. The uh, er, the late '60s, early '70s. Now you could find a peach tree, a pear tree a plum tree and just go and start picking off it and just eating the fruit right there. But now it's, it's, they're not plentiful at all. Um, you can hardly find a fruit tree. But there are still a few pear trees because they're a little more hardier than the, than the peach or the plums and all. But they're just is not plentiful as they were years ago. Can you tell us about the farm that you had in Oklahoma and, and what were you all doing there? And we lived on a, a five-acre farm in Oklahoma, uh, right outside the city. Uh, it was outside the city, but I was still in the town. Had a city mailing address. And we lived on this five acres there. And I'll tell you, we we grew all sort of vegetables. Fruit trees, we had palm trees, peach trees, pear trees, apple trees, and they produced abundantly. of fruit. We uh, had a huge... Two acre garden. We planted sweet potatoes, iced potatoes, corn, tomatoes, peas, beans, okra, uh, squash, beets, of course mustard greens, turner greens. Uh-huh. Just a variety of vegetables we grew. I had a farmer's market right there on our property. Matter of fact, we were the first farmer in Oklahoma to have an active farmer's market right on the farm where the vegetables and fruit was grown. Our mission was to help to supply the community with healthy, nutritious food. Of course, we, uh, we were a farmer's market and we sold uh, really not-for-profit. Uh, we got donations and all, and people. Uh, of course, to replenish our seed supply and all that. But basically, it was good, cheap food. I mean, good, what I mean by cheap, it's, and it's, uh, money-wise, it's, it was not that expensive compared to the store. Our products were better than what the store carried, though. Uh-huh. we didn't use any pesticides, herbicides, fungicides on our garden. Like I always well, tell the people, I let the bugs eat a few, and then uh, we would take the rest. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what I like to say on my farm.
0: Uh,
4: uh, Is let let it, let everybody else eat too. Yeah, that's right. The bugs, the birds, the animals. And that's what yeah,
5: that's what we. And that's what happened on our farm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we also had cooking demonstrations on the farm because. A lot of our customers weren't familiar with a lot of type of food, on how to cook it, especially squash. And uh, we had the, my wife, Melda, we had a little cooking advice outside with a propane stove where she would demonstrate on how to cook certain uh, vegetables and all of that. And it, was, it was very rewarding. People really enjoyed it too.
4: You also had a lot of animals.
5: Oh, yeah, we did. We raised goats, chickens, duck, turkeys, guineas geese uh, and at one time we raised pigs also mm-hmm. and we had a uh, cattle at
4: a uh, uh, time or two and i heard you say you you want to get goats again can you talk about why goats are so special to you
5: oh yeah uh, well, we love goats and all. of course goat's milk is next to mother's milk very nutritious and delicious and all because the goats are out there eating all those nutritious herbs and all that we need to, you know, survive on and the milk is delicious, and we sold goat milk at a very reasonable price, and a lot of our customers really loved it. It was raw milk; we we sold it as raw, and uh, we just could not produce enough. Oh, we used of course for drinking, uh, cooking, bathing. We would bathe our daughters when they were really, when they were young, like uh, infants. We'd bathe them in the tub and goat's milk because. At the beginning, there was plenty. There was plenty of it. Not before we started to sell it, so we we had plenty. So we did that, and we'll give it away to people. And people that had newborn babies will come by, and we we'll give it give some to them for the babies and all. Uh-huh. Goat milk's good for the skin and all. Have to nourish the skin and all, keep it healthy and bright. They're energetic. Yeah, it's just wonderful. And so you're gonna have goats here someday. Yeah, we're starting. Yeah, we're in the process right now. Uh huh. I'm uh, starting over again raising goats and all, yeah, basically for the milk because uh, there's people in the area that really desire goats milk. And right now, of course, I know there's no one raising goats uh, to supply the need. And the grocery stores around here doesn't sell it either. You may find it sometime in some of the store, maybe a Walmart in the can, but the canned goats milk is not like fresh milk uh, that you make directly on the farm, on the goat. And then you do have bees here. Oh, yes, yeah. We've been raising bees for 20 years now. We started in Oklahoma with one hive. And prior to leaving, we had over, I think, about 15 hives. And uh, we harvest twice a year. That's very unusual. Yeah, but we harvest twice a year.
4: What What does it take to be successful as a beekeeper? Oh. Like, what does it take to develop a good relationship with your bees?
5: Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, that's... We used to they so say you want to be a, goat, a beekeeper. That's not just a notion now. This is a full job, basically. 24 hours a day, you have to be checking on your hives and making sure things are right and proper. And you want to uh, check the entrance and all, and make sure the bees are in and out, and there's no there's no stoppage up there. You just have to be there all the time, all the day and just checking things. Not that you're going inside the hive, but just on the outside, checking the grounds and all that and making sure the fences are secure because there are several creatures like animals that love hunting. Uh, bears and um uh, like skunks well they love the bees themselves, not the honey. They will come out and feed on the bees and all and so you wanna check and make sure that you, as I said your fencing are there, your fencing is secure and that the bees are still flying in and out. Uh-huh. Even during the winter time, you want to check and make sure that, you know, there's activity and all. When it's really cold, when I can't get inside the hive, I just put my ear to the hive and listen for the sound of the buzzing and all, and so it's there. It's strong sound, that's what you want to hear
4: when you're listening there. I went over yesterday and put my ear to the hives and it sounded
5: so nice. Can you describe what it sounds like? Oh, it's just a little buzzing sound, knowing you knowing that the bee, the hide is healthy and the queen is there, alive and all, and uh, there's little strange noises inside being made, and that's the bee, that's the queen bee making those noises and all. Basically, she's she's talking to the bees and all. That's how that's how I get it. Uh huh. Do you ever talk to the bees? I talk to the bees all the time. Yeah, I talk to the bees. I pray with the bees. I sing with the bees and all. Because they're... God give to us, they, they produce that golden treasure that we love, we call honey. God gave us these wonderful insects, the only insects that produce food for humans. And um, I don't know if you can ever tame bees or not, but that I do believe they recognize you though, when you go there uh, to check on, I really believe they do. And uh, yeah, so we're continuing we, we continue to do that in our, uh, talking to them, singing to them, and praying with them, asking God to continue to sustain them, that they continue to produce uh, that golden treasure for us.
4: Well, my last question, if you don't mind, I know you're done with the greens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's just that we're surrounded by a whole different kind of agriculture right now. Like I'm literally looking at a field behind us. That is just a completely different approach, and I'm wondering if you can describe that dominant kind of at least the way it looks. It looks like it's mostly different kind of farming around here than what you're describing.
5: Well, yes, and our home, we we live here. This, this is a flat portion in the north, the, the southern section of the of the city, and we're in a floodplain. Most of all of the delta is plain and all, uh, and so we're surrounded by four fields. Uh, our home is surrounded by four fields. Cotton is planted, cotton, corn, and, and soybean, and these crops are rotated each year. And once the harvest is harvested during the fall, the farmers go in, goes in and, and they uh, dish up the field and set the rows up, preparing for the next harvest season. And usually you know they start planting around February or March, uh, March yet. Yeah. Notice now, if you could see what we're seeing right now in the four fields, they're clean, the rows are up, you don't see a speck or piece of grass at all. It is so clean. and That's because of the uh, chemicals that are used to destroy the weeds, the herbicides that are used to destroy the weeds, and uh, they do a good job at it all. So the, cleans are, the fields are just perfectly clean during the summertime. You hardly see any weeds at all, and that really bothers me when I don't see weeds in, in a field. Uh-huh. It tells me that, whatever's, that whatever kills the weed, apparently the, the, the harvest is also absorbing that, And uh, I guess it's taking a little time before we get to us, yeah. Yeah, it's su- it's surprising. I thought they must be about to plant with
4: how clean it was, but it just stays that clean for half a year, it seems like, before they plant again.
5: Yes, oh yeah, very much so. Even when the plant is up, full growth, it's still clean. I can recall as a boy going to the field and chopping, basically we were hired to chop cotton, weeds from around the cotton and all. And Johnson weed would be almost four to five feet tall. I can recall that. And uh, it was embedded there in the in the uh in the cotton the tractor couldn't get in there and and do anything, so they hired labor to do it and I can recall just chopping weeds weeds, weeds, weeds but now uh there's hardly ever any uh there are still choppers, and you know? uh farmers still hire choppers to do like on the outside the perimeter the perimeter side of the field to chop weeds and on uh, but as a whole no uh chopping uh weeds from cotton is just thing of the past uh, because of the grass killers and all that the, the farmers are used to uh, destroy that part of it. Wow!
4: So it's changed so much in 40, 50 years that, that now it's,
5: the landscape doesn't have people in it mostly. It has changed a whole lot, yeah. And I guess I hope it's for the good. I hope so anyway because I know that insects are, are plentiful and they can really take over and fill along with the weeds and all too. So I guess most of the farmers instead are uh, just trying to do it the natural way, and it would be really expensive also without using the, the chemicals to uh, suppress the insects and, and the weeds.
4: To me, it's really telling, though, that, you know, after growing up in this landscape, that you and your family have always focused on diversified organic agriculture.
5: Yeah, always. Yeah, we always plant a variety of vegetables and fruit and all. Because when I grew up, I don't recall it, knowing anything about the pesticide. And, that, and we, as I said, we never used it. But I do recall other family other people, using the seven dust. It's it been around forever, but we never used that. And uh, even on the farm in Oklahoma, like when we were harvesting our greens uh, almost midsummer, summer they would have holes and all in from the south side and People say I don't want this. I said, Why not? Look at all the holes. shows you just that. It just shows you that the worms they know that they're on it, and there's nothing on there. It's not any pesticide that we use in there to uh, to destroy them. So the greens are perfect. Where well, my thought they're better than mm-hmm. these are better than ones you would buy at the store that are fully greens and not holy. Mm-hmm. The holes are kind of like a five-star Yelp review from the caterpillar
4: like the caterpillar gave it its you know star of approval
5: yeah oh surely that's right he said this, this is great this is great yeah we're gonna feed on it so you can too I've even heard that that
4: triggers a response in the leaf to resist caterpillars that' actually creates healthy uh, compounds for us oh I
5: didn't know that that's wonderful though I, I agree with it too yeah I agree with that
4: and I grew up keeping a garden and I had elders you know, in my community, that gave me Seven Dust, gave me a Miracle Grow, and I used it because I didn't, I didn't know any better. It was only later that I that I learned, and it's it's awesome to me that you you all never even used it.
5: Yeah, we never used it. Even my grand my grandpa, he he was an active gardener and forester. Sure he, uh, I mean, he did it all. He set out trees and all and everything, and I never. I, and had a nice garden in his in his backyard. I never never saw him use uh, seven dust or anything. Yeah, just horse manure that he would bring in and uh, mix with the soil. Well,
4: thank you. And thank you for inspiring one of my favorite farmers, Rumel, to to do what you do. You know, he's really followed in your footsteps. And I know that the way that you've lived, which has mirrored the way your predecessors lived, has really impacted him and shaped his work in the world. And now it's our collective work, and I just want to thank you for that.
5: Well, thank you, too. And and I can remember his grandmother. If he was four or five years old, she would take him out in the garden and all, and he would help her chop weeds and all, and... uh, uh, I think he even picked some of the uh, the fruit from the garden. Yeah, so he's he's been doing this for quite a while, and we're so proud of him. And, uh, and he's continuing to work with our grandchild also, and uh, we just hope he'll continue on. Uh, you know he will. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, y'all, so in this piece, you're going to be hearing from Brian, our son, and Owen, and they're going to be describing— the big open crop field across the street from our house and recording animal and other sounds from the natural world in beautiful Greenville, Mississippi. Brian, can you say what we recorded? What sounds people
4: are going to hear?
0: We recorded a blue jay. Uh, Well, a lot of birds. That should be a crow that should be a robin.
4: There's a white-throated sparrow, there is a robin and there's a blue jay.
0: I knew it.
4: A blue jay is related to a crow, you know that?
0: Wait, so that mm, is a blue jay?
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, we recorded a donkey and a horse chewing. Oh, I felt
4: it. Squeezy. Thanks, horses Thanks, horsies. And a donkey.
0: We recorded a chicken and a rooster. And we recorded some kitties. Cute little fellas. And some bees week recorded with us me and my dad throwing down at the river some sticks that's
4: pretty good, that's pretty good. your turn
0: mm-hmm. hold your hat. thank you
4: all right what do you see out there
0: um i see some Dried plants and I just saw a bird fly by.
4: Come on, let's see. What do you think they do over there?
0: I don't know. Maybe relax? Maybe make their sounds? No, not
4: the birds. What do you think people do over here?
0: I don't know. In that field,
4: in that field with the dirt.
0: plant stuff. Like what? Like maybe tobacco. Cotton.
4: Tobacco, cotton, those are great guesses. What else do you think?
0: Um, soybeans.
4: Uh Uh-huh, what else?
0: I don't know. I think that's all. Delivery chop, UPS.
4: Okay, what other plants do people plant that much of that's in such a big space? Corn. That's right. Your pop-pop told me they plant... Cotton, tobacco, and I mean, not tobacco, cotton, corn, and soybeans, there in diff- on rotation, not all at the same time. So, you were right, and a lot of people plant tobacco in big fields like that, but not, not here.
0: oh, so I got one wrong and three right.
4: Yeah, that was really good. How far do you think that is? How big that f- is that field?
0: Guessing like 100 miles, 200 something. Yeah, I
4: don't know about a hundred miles, but it sure is big.
0: What about fifteen?
4: I'm gonna guess that we're looking like twenty. Like to the far edge of the field. I'm gonna guess it's like two miles away.
0: No, twenty it has to
4: be. Two zero. Okay, maybe. All right. Nice talking to you, Brian.
0: Hey, you talk to me all the time. Nice talking to y'all, my
4: mates. Nice talking to y'all, all all you listeners.
0: Love ya. Winking. Hey, that's what I say.
1: Okay, you say
4: it.
0: Winking!
1: In this interview, you're going to hear from my parents, Rufus and Demelda Newsom, And they're sitting down with Mr. Elgin. They're going to be talking to him. About his work as a firewood seller and as a greens farmer for the entire community of Greenville, Mississippi. What's very surprising to me is uh, I didn't know him, uh, even though he lives not far from uh, where I grew up in Greenville. So take a listen, and I hope you enjoy.
5: Can you uh, maybe? Where well, can we get the wood to pop in and put you want that to hear sound?
4: The sounds okay. Uh-huh. Hope it doesn't burn my mic.
2: Hello everybody. This is Mama D and we're coming to you from Greenville, Mississippi and we're talking to Mr. Johnson. His name is Eldon Johnson and he grows greens. I mean lots of greens. Also, he does wood. He uh, sells firewood, but I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about himself. So can you introduce yourself, Ms. Johnson? Yes.
6: My name is Elgin Johnson. I was born and raised here in, in Greenville, Mississippi. I've been here all my life. And it's like a family thing with the firewood. We started, actually, my uncle brought tracts of land, of uh, woods. And we thought we're going to get somebody to come in to harvest the wood. So he brought us the equipment, and we started doing firewood. And this was back in, I'd say, 74, 75 and we uh, paid our way through college by selling firewood up until today. It was eight boys in the family, and we had a family farm that growed soybeans, cotton, and rice. So a certain time of year, everything, we, we would call it lay by. The crop is made, uh, what it's gonna do, getting ready to harvest. So we'd just be laying around doing nothing. So he came with the idea, uh, he bought these tracts of land that we was gonna clear out to make for farmland. So we start cutting firewood out of there, hardwood, oak, pecan, ash, hickory. And start selling producing firewood for the community.
5: Mr. Johnson, hi, I'm Rufus Nielsen, Mama D's uh husband. Such an honor, pleasure to meet you. Yes, sir. I know you, but you may not know me. I know your family members also. But uh, over four, 34 years ago, we moved away from Greenville and moved to Tulsa, and uh, we farmed there. Matter of fact, we did, I did a little wood chopping also, and uh, we did gardening, and we had a farmer's market. But I can remember right at this very spot that you all sold firewood. Back in the 70s, I can remember when I came this far north in Greenville. I can remember seeing the wood pile up out here and people coming by and buying. It. And I also can remember the mustard greens in the garden. They were so beautiful, and the leaves were so broad and uh, I always admired this piece of land. Now, uh, the other family, are any other family members involved in, in in the cutting and all and selling? it?
6: Uh, yes, I have four brothers, and we all partnership into the business, and we brought it from. Uh, axe up until log splitters and wood processors. Now, so we have a wood processor that we put the wood in, and it processes the wood into small pieces. Then we can produce, I say, a cord of wood in about a half a day. But now we have the modern technology. Now that we can produce five cords of wood in three hours. How wonderful! How wonderful!
2: Yes, yes. So, what was it a challenge to learn about which woods work best for different things like barbecuing? You would use different woods, and if you're doing a fireplace or a
6: pit, yes, my uncle, he taught us all of that how to go out and select the trees. You have a red oak, white oak, red pecan, and vanilla pecan. And I would say, back in the day, how they smoked their own meat, they used certain woods to smoke the meat. And that's where the flavor came from from the smoke so he told us how to identify the wood how to cut it what not to cut what to save for later on and we do uh produce cooking wood well we have a wood good for barbecue we call it the uh shaggy bark pecan it's in the hickory family but it's always it's a nut and like i was mentioning earlier you got a bitter nut and a sweet nut so they give you a flavor like uh or smoke flavor in your wood. We also have hickory, which give you a light taste on your barbecue. And we sell to several local barbecue restaurants. And a lot of them got secret recipes where they would take several woods and mix together and get their own flavor. Yes. These are all hardwoods too, am I correct, Mr. Johnson? Yes sir, you're correct, they're all hardwoods. And the hardwood take a long time to produce. So that's why my dad would go out and select trees for us to cut.
2: So tell us a little bit uh, about your your greens patch.
6: It's beautiful. Tell
2: tell us about that.
6: Well, in the greens patch, I grow uh, the mustards, uh, southern mustards, the Florida broadleaf mustard, uh, the southern collards, and we also have like a tender mustard. It's more in the mustard family, but it's more a uh, tender leaf. And we uh, grow the purple bottom turnips. And here in the Delta, we have a rich soil. We have different soil in different areas of the Delta. You got your sandy loom, your buck loom, and we got this we call a clay's buckshot. And now I'm growing in a clay's buckshot, which don't take much water, but it get real hot and the ground would crack open.
2: So that must be a, a real big challenge in growing your greens or, or you you got a system down now for it?
6: Well, I have a watering system out in the garden to water, but once the earth starts cracking, it takes more water in in the ground. So what we do, we try to get started early. We prepare the earth, keep it tilled, we add rice husks to help hold the soil loose so the ground the green root can have room to grow. Because your clay soil is so compacted it'd be hard for the root to grow.
2: Where did you get the rice husk and, and how did you come about that? Because I've never heard of doing it like that.
6: Okay, I worked in a rice facility for 25 years. And there, we will take it and we'll shell the rice, and that, that'll be a byproduct off of the rice. We used to have a, a fuel five boiler that they would take it and burn the rice for fuel and the plant energy steam. But they went from that went to modern gas boiler, so it was just, they were just taking it to the landfill. So I developed a way where I can get some and put it in the garden. And I did a test plot where we took it and we tilled it in with the buckshot, and it made it more looser. So, we can get a, a good root base on our vegetables. My dad always wants to add sand to the soil, but like I say, the clay would get dry and around August crack open and intake the sand, and the sand would be gone. So, we started using the rice husks, which would stay there with the soil to help keep it loose uh, from compacting.
5: That's interesting, Mr. Johnson, too. Not only it help with the loosening up the soil, also fertilize the, the ground there once that decomposed. And, and that decomposed material is what loosened that soil up. And uh, where the, and you're very correct, too, because if that soil is so tight, the root system doesn't have anywhere to go. And so it, if you can't get nourishment from the soil, you're going to die. Good idea. No one else probably even thought about that but you.
2: That's what I'm thinking, too. <laughs> yeah, and, and just the, the idea of it not all all of that going into the landfill or somewhere else, you found a way to use that byproduct to really make this productive. So how do the customers know about
6: you? How do you, how do you get the word out? I don't do any kind of advertising. My dad used to plant the green to help the community. Mm. Certain people don't like a store-bought green because it's grown kind of like in a, a greenhouse, self-contained, but this green is really grown from the earth and taking all the nutrients from the earth. And we try to stay organic as possible, you know, less chemicals, cause it take effect on your body. And you're doing that right here in Greenville. And I would
2: venture to say most people don't even realize that you're helping to keep the community healthy by just the process of the way you, you do your things, your greens and, and all of that. And then the knowledge base you have of, of your wood business. I, I just tell you, I'm, I'm really in awe of of all that you're doing so have you passed it down to um the next generation like your other family members under you
6: so i have three sisters i only have two nephews uh one is going to Alcorn State now for agriculture so he would be like the family backbone to carry on but he wanted to uh actually do cotton research yes uh yeah so he's going for cotton research and hopefully he will pick up the family farm and keep the lid thing going here to help the community with the greens. We also plant uh, sweet corn, purple hood peas, speckled butter beans in the spring of the year, and also a spring green. You can get the same mustard green I got here planted now to germinate in the spring because it's a cool weather crop. We chose no particular crop because it's a basically crop in the Delta that people love to eat at a certain time of year. And a certain time of year, they're going to look for those purple hull peas, those speckled butter beans, and especially around the holidays, turnip, mustard, collars, greens. It's like a holiday tradition, family tradition, to get together. Everybody want their greens, and everybody got a secret how they cook their greens. So you have families competing about who greens taste the best. So they're locally grown. They come here, and we uh, prepare it for them, and they go home and break on the cooking. Some people use, you know, different things in the different spices, like red peppers, crushed pepper. And some family members use, I don't know if you uh, understand the terminology of (laughs) (laughs) cha-cha. Yes, they love that in their greens. So it's a different thing for the family. See,
5: we moved away from uh, Greenville some 40 years ago, but we're back now. But while in Oklahoma, at certain times of the year, my body craves certain foods from the south. Even though I'm eight hundred miles away from here, my body is craving sweet potatoes, butter bean, purple hole, cornbread, uh, uh mustard green, turnip green, collard green. Even though we do eat we eat those in Oklahoma, but at a certain year it, it it, it's even stronger like this time of the year. I even back in Oklahoma this time of the year, my body would crave all, all those type foods simply because we grew up on those foods. My mother and grandmother cooked those type food. I can recall seeing them in the kitchen and, and, and the, the aroma and all just it, it was as if I was back in time, even uh, at six years old, I could smell that aroma as if it was as if they were cooking it right there right there.
2: Uh, so you are you planting everything here at this particular spot, or do you have another spot that you're doing the
6: peas and the corn? In? We have another spot we do the peas and corn. So we plant acres of that, and uh, they be harvested and sent to the market.
2: So you you sell that commercially, the the corn and
6: the peas, or or just the same way that you
2: do the greens
6: here? It's the same way we do the greens. Once the harvest come coming and harvest the green, the people come in. And buy the vegetables, buy the crates and stuff like that.
5: Why did you decide that you wanted to go organic?
6: Well, actually, my grandmom, she was against pesticides, harsh pesticides. Mm -hmm. Um, In her garden, she had a little thing where she would use like uh, coffee grinds, uh, eggshells, or a little dishwashing detergent to spray on the plant, a mist on the plant to keep the bugs off. And it had a good taste. Yes, and she would also use like the banana peelings and pear peelings to put back into the soil or to uh, help fertilize it. And the greens we have now, the ones that we don't harvest, we till back into the soil. So we're putting the nutrients back into the soil from the plant that we're growing. Speaking of mustard greens, the mustard green picks the flavor from the root and it all start, starts in the preparation of your soil. A good seed bed produces a good fruit a good vegetable and your taste come up through your stalk into the leaves. So I convince some customers to don't throw your stalks away. Take them, make a paste and put it back into your green. You put in more flavor.
2: So did you learn all of this on your own about I mean because this is deep.
6: Actually I worked at a rice facility for 25 years and I was basically got rice but I used the same technology as uh, the rice fields, the rice beds, to prepare uh, the gardens, and that's
5: so true. And that comes from your background, your training. And we have a granddaughter; she's twelve, what, thirteen now, and she comes and visits with us during the summer here, and just t- and she worked with us do- this this summer in the fields and all and and yeah. And I know you can uh, you can relate with me on this. Back then. Back in the day, uh, ones that didn't have tractors and have discs, but we had to break the ground up with shovels and all. Can you relate to that?
6: I can relate to farther back that my grandmother had this guy to come by with a team of mules that would repair the garden. And he'd walk behind him with things, you know, talking to him. And he would say certain things, he, yo, ho, and the mule would turn and go the way he wanted to go. But we all had to get out and break those clods up. For to get the garden prepared with a hose, uh, forks, yeah, shovels like that, and also set the rows up. Uh-huh. Yes. And
5: I think when you were a child there, you watched your parents do all this. And, and going back to my, my granddaughter, the same thing, I just showed her what to do. I turned my back, and when I turned back around, she had two rows set up already, ready for planting.
2: And
0: man, I
5: said to myself, how did you learn this? Papa, I just want you. And and, and Miss Johnson, my whole family was farmers. They've been farmers uh, for centuries, you
6: and, know. And, and so my sister always said, well, that's natural for us.
5: <laughs> mm-hmm.
6: Yes, it is. I came from a farming uh, family background, too.
2: I know there's a scripture say that the earth shall teach you. And it seems like you've really learned what the earth had to teach you. Like you were open
6: to that, you know. Um, well, I love the outdoors, and, yes, I kind of picked a lot of stuff up from my grandma, my aunts, because they had, like, gardens and stuff.
2: So one of the other things I want to ask you about is um, when the greens go to seed, um, what, what do you do? Do you save your seeds or do you sell the seeds? What, how does that work for you?
6: We use, like, a reproduction process. When the green, the green, you to go to seeds, it's going to put on a, a flower, and from a flower, we'll call it, you get a fruit which produces the seed. And once it does that, and you, uh, your flowers turn brown, and your seed be within a pod. So we would take those and harvest those, and take it, and we, and we put it in like uh, a barrel, so we can air out and dry. And in March, with the wind blowing, for my grandma's trick, we would take it and put it on a tarp, and we would pop the tarp. And the wind would blow all the husks off the seeds, and we have the seeds.
2: I love that process
5: compared to the machines they have now I could do that. You did all that the natural way. You save your seeds for that next year to to plant. And this is what a lot of people are doing right now: saving. Uh, they save their seeds and they share these seeds with other farmers and all uh, at no cost at all. And that's what savers do. Uh, do you all share your certain your seeds with uh, with some of the customers
6: that asked when any customer come by and want to know how to grow a green, the green got a mature to date from 30 to 45 days actual maturity date the green goes until we call like a state of dormancy and they start putting on the seeds and i tell them to come by grab some take it home and sit in your window and let the sun dry it out and you have your seeds even on the peas and butter beans especially okra yeah, we grow longhorn okra, and you can use the seed year after year. But you have to keep it where the, we call it the icons won't get in and eat the seed. So, not actually like using a chemical to treat it. You can keep uh, in a controlled vir- environment where, you know, keep the bugs out of them.
5: Mr. Jones, how can other listeners around the country find out about your story and and the way that you grow your crops and how can we reach you for those that would like to talk to you visit you on those subjects
6: okay so we have a processing area we process the wood and also across from the processing area we grow the greens so we are located in Greenville Mississippi uh, highway 1 north and we be here seven days a week
2: great thank you so much so you heard it here Highway number one in Greenville, Mississippi and the cross street is short Irene. So, Mr Johnson, I, I tell you what, we, we are so honored and, and thankful that you shared your time and your
5: um and your thoughts with us, uh, yes. on your growing procedure and uh that you shared with us things that we didn't know especially about type woods and all, and we're very grateful that you allowed us to come here, sit here, you. and uh, you tell us, you teach us the way that your family produced uh, crops and the way that you all save your seeds and all that, and we thank you so much.
6: All right, thank you all.
1: <laughs> thank you so much again to Keevian Young, Mommy, Daddy, and Mr. Elgin Johnson. A special thanks to Mama D for co-hosting and
4: co-producing this episode with us. Um, it was such a pleasure, and I hope it's not the only time. And to our son, Brian, for helping record and edit
1: his animal noise section. And thank you for listening and sharing this episode of Seeds and Their People with your loved ones. Thank you also for supporting our seed-keeping and storytelling work by ordering seeds, T-shirts, and more from our website
4: trueloveseeds.com. And again, please sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com
1: trueloveseeds. Your support keeps the episodes coming. And remember, keeping seeds is an act of true love for our ancestors and our collective future. Happy holidays.